0: Turn now, in God's Word, to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. The last five verses of Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, describe to us the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first three and a half chapters of Matthew are introducing to us this one who will come on the scene declaring the kingdom of God in chapter 4. We see his birth, we see his genealogy, we see his flight to Egypt and his return. We see the ministry of John the Baptist, which culminates when Christ himself comes down from Galilee to meet John there by the Jordan River. And that is where we begin in our text this morning from Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 and reading through the end of the chapter. So please follow along with me as we hear the very word of God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is Thus, for the reading of God's holy word, let us pray. Ask Him to bless it in our ears this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a full account of our Savior's ministry. All that we need to know of our Lord and Master has been revealed to us. And not only does it reveal to us further, further knowledge and depth of truth, but it reveals to our hearts our need for Him and the power that He has given us by the Spirit. Uh, to follow after him as his people, as his servants, indeed his subjects of the great king. So we pray in the great king's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, being as we are in a college town, I hardly uh, need to tell you the focus or even the obsession that some people seem to have with credentials I'm in the publishing world in my day-to-day job, and I can't pick up a book that we publish without learning where the author went to college. Now, sometimes that's important, and sometimes I couldn't care less. I was uh, reading this week a a report uh, prepared by a denomination that has like three churches. You can hardly call it a denomination. Everybody knows everybody. And they were pulling out this report, and the front page was every member of the committee's name And his credentials. And I'm like, these people know everybody. They don't need to know that this man went to MIT and that person went to Indiana University, but uh, that was how they presented themselves to their readers with their credentials. Now, in some instances, this is important. You probably wouldn't go uh, to have surgery done by a man who didn't have the proper credentials. You can't uh, run for office. If you don't meet the various criteria, credentials that, that are to be satisfied for the various ones. If you want to be the president, you've you got to be 35. You have been born in this country and have lived here for a certain number of years. You want to run for Congress, various ages. You want to run for the city council. You have to perhaps live in the proper ward, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Credentials can be helpful when they are apropos to the job at hand. Well, the gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John the gospel writers are, are, are given the uh, nature of what they are writing, the importance of revealing to us the credentials of Christ. To show who is this man who comes on the scene claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to have the power to forgive sin, claiming to have the power of the wind and the waves that he then demonstrates in his work. And so I thought in the few times that I have with you before your new pastor comes, we would look at some of these high points of Jesus revealing to the world his credentials. We see that this morning in his baptism, as a voice speaks from heaven declaring who this man is. Lord willing, in future weeks, we'll look at his transfiguration, at his uh, his miracles and the way he declares himself to be who he is via his Works that are recorded for us in these Gospels. And hopefully, we'll be able to do this uh, through the various Gospels, at least the first few. But today, we are in Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 3, as I said before I read the text, Jesus comes on the scene in perhaps a surprising way. After all, wasn't John the Baptist surprised? He said, What are you doing here? But in so doing, submitting to John's baptism, having the Spirit descend upon him like a dove, having a voice from heaven speak. Jesus' ministry is declared to us. And therefore, when those proper credentials are presented to us, our hearts are reminded, yes, this is my Savior. Yes, this is the one who is uniquely qualified to call himself my King, my Lord, the one in whom I give my allegiance, the one who around whom I uh, design and Lord willing, obey in each aspect of my life. This morning, we'll see his ministry explained to us, verses 13 to 15. We'll see his ministry empowered in verse 16. And we'll see his ministry endorsed in verse 17 by the very voice of the Lord. Explained, Jesus' ministry empowered, Jesus' ministry Endorsed. Let's begin in verse 13 by seeing how Jesus' ministry is explained to us in this short text. We first see that John the Baptist is doing his work. He is baptizing. And people debate, why was John baptizing? What does this have to do? If John was like a prophet, well, we don't see other prophets in the Old Testament baptizing. Why was John baptizing? And if you look earlier in the chapter, you'll see it's very clear. Verse 2, what does he say? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 6, what does it say? The people were baptizing, being baptized by him, confessing their sins. Verse 8, the same thing. Jesus or John says, bear fruit and keeping in repentance. Verse 11, the same thing. I baptize you with water for repentance. Repentance, repentance, repentance. Confessing their sins. John was coming to the people, preparing the way for the one who would forgive their sins by, by softening their hearts. Reminding them of their need for a Savior. That is what repentance is all about, isn't it? When we come to that point in our lives when we realize the depth of our own sin, the depth of our need for the one who is coming, for Christ Himself. And so, convicted by John's preaching, the people come and they submit to the waters of baptism. They repent from their sins, they turn to Him. If you read Jesus or John's, excuse me, John's preaching, He then tells them what in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They are to live a certain way because of their baptism, their cleansing, their new life. So when Jesus comes on the scene in verse 13, what does he say? He looks at Jesus or John's ministry of baptizing for repentance, and he says, yeah, I need that too. Jesus comes to John to be baptized by him. And John says, what? Doesn't he? Verse 14, what does he say? John says, I need to be baptized by you, Jesus. What what are you doing coming to me to be baptized? John recognizes who's the sinner here in this relationship. He recognizes it's not the one coming to him to be baptized, but it says he himself who is the sinner, not Christ. But Jesus explains in verse 15. He explains why it is proper for him to be baptized submitting himself to a baptism for the repentance and forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, let it be so. Let me be baptized by you. Why? For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says it is suitable. It is proper. It is fitting. It is right. It is appropriate for us in what we do here in the waters of the Jordan river to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill, to bring to fullness, to bring to completion, to bring to its end point that which accords with righteousness, the right character of the Father, and the way in which that character implies requirements of those whom he has made, the righteousness of God, that which is true of him, and what is therefore required of those whom he has made. Jesus says, it is fitting for us to fulfill those things by my being baptized by you. Think about what Christ is saying here. In order for the the appropriate uh, supreme moral character of God to be revealed in the world, for it to be seen for truly what it is, the, the very righteousness of God himself and in his people, Jesus had to be baptized. Jesus had to submit to the waters of baptized. Jesus had to be, in some sense, what? Identified as a sinner. Jesus did not say, I am a sinner. Jesus did not say, I have any need for my own cleansing. But he says, in order to fulfill this righteousness, I must identify myself with these Pharisees coming for baptism, with these Sadducees coming for baptism, with those whom Jesus identifies, whom John declares as a brood of vipers. Jesus says, yes, I must throw in my lot with them. I must be made like one of them. I must be accounted to have the status as one fleeing from the wrath to come, as the baptizer puts it. This is why I said that the baptism of Jesus explains his ministry. For Jesus to be a savior of his people, for Jesus to be one who could take on the sins of you and of me, he had to identify himself, he had to count himself as the worst of sinners, needing the baptism waters that was shared with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the hypocrites and the self-righteous bigots of the day. Jesus says, they recognize their need to be cleansed. I recognize my need to be counted among them. That Christ and his ministry could fulfill the righteousness of God. How does baptism lead to that fulfillment? If you read later, In the the Gospels, Jesus begins again to speak of his own baptism. But this time, he's not looking at the baptism of the Jordan. He speaks of a baptism that he has to undergo as a baptism of fire, a baptism of suffering, a baptism of drinking the cup of God's wrath, a baptism of crucifixion. Jesus says, for me to be baptized, for me to be identified with y'all sinful people. Means I must be identified with you in another way. I must be identified with you in the result of that sinfulness, which is death. Which is the very judgment of the Father upon sin. that's how God maintains his own righteousness. There's only two ways in which God's righteousness can be maintained in this world. Those who do not have it are condemned. Those who are given it by grace demonstrate it in their lives. And both are true of Christ, aren't they? He reveals it perfectly in his obedience, even to the baptism of John as a foretaste of so that greater baptism to come, the baptism of the cross. And as he does so, he shares that righteousness with his people. That the fulfillment of righteousness includes even you. As your heart is cleansed, not with the waters of baptism, but with the waters of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in a minute. As you are united to Christ. Christ humbles himself to the point of the the depths of the Jordan River. To be like us. So that we could become like him as he fulfills the very righteousness of of God. And Luke, Jesus says this, he says, I have not come to call the righteous. I have not come to call those who think they don't need to be identified with the waters of baptism or the blood of the cross. I have come to call whom? I have come to call sinners to repentance. I have come to bring others along with me as I undergo the waters of John's baptism and the very death of the cross. Friends, as John saw Jesus coming to him for baptism, you remember what he said, Lord, I don't don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. You need to cleanse me. John, the greatest of all the prophets, the one who from the very womb was quickened by the Holy Spirit to recognize the voice of his cousin's mother as Mary came to visit her cousin Elizabeth. That one who had all the privileges of growing up, knowing that he was set apart for this mission, knowing that his father, a priest, could teach him all that was true of the law, all that Gabriel had revealed to him of his ministry to come, even that one who recognized, I still need Christ. If that is true of him, how much more must it be true of us? If John recognized his need for Christ, how much more must we I began by talking about credentials, and and we all have them, don't we? We all have things that, in the eyes of the world, give us value, give us worth. And some of these are good. We have studied hard. We have passed exams. We have received accreditation. These are all good things, but in the eyes of Christ, these merit us nothing. We are sinners in need of being united to Christ in his baptism. So that when he is baptized again on the cross, not with water, but with uh, the nails that kill him, the spear that digs into his side, we can be counted righteous. None of anything we bring to the equation, because Christ recognized that, yes, I must be baptized. I must be made like these sinners, that they may be made like us. When we make little of our sin, when we pretend like our sin is really not that important, when we, when we reckon, oh, most of my sins are of the white lie variety, they're of the quibble here, the, the non-important uh, slip of the tongue over there. When we make little of our sin, we make a mockery of humility that Christ revealed here. If Christ is willing to go to any depth of deprivation, of identifying with the worst of all sinners for us, how can we pretend like we're better than all that? How could we refuse to admit and to recognize our own need? That's how Christ's ministry of salvation explained to us. As he comes at the very forefront of his ministry, to submit to the baptism of a preacher of fire and brimstone, John himself. But as he does so, as he explains his ministry to us in his act of humility, we see immediately what happens in verse 16. See, he comes up out of the waters, the heavens are open, and the Spirit of God descending upon him to empower him for the ministry that he just inaugurated in his baptism he's not going to go about this ministry on his own power he's going to be filled with the power of the holy spirit immediately that's a key word immediately linking these two acts the inauguration of his ministry and the descending of the holy spirit he sees it coming upon him like a dove luke says it's in bodily form in other words the gospel writers are getting at this fact it was visible it could be seen. It doesn't mean it was literally a flesh and blood dove. It means that as the Spirit was descending, you could see some sort of physical manifestation. We're not quite sure what it was. You think of the Spirit often in Scripture compared to a wind. You think you can't actually see the wind, but you can see the physical effects of the wind, can't you? So perhaps in some sort of way like that, it was obvious, it was clear to all there on the shores of the Jordan That the Holy Spirit was empowering this man for ministry. Just like Old Testament saints were empowered for ministry. We can think of the servant of the Lord, Joshua. The the text of the Old Testament tells us that the Spirit was upon him. Old Testament prophets like Moses and Ezekiel received the Holy Spirit. Old Testament priests like Zechariah and Abarakiah, especially Old Testament kings, Saul, David, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, the great servant of the Lord, the great prophet and priest, and King of God, receives for the empowerment of his ministry, the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God. By this we know that his ministry is empowered by the Lord himself. If you begin tracing the work of the Spirit throughout uh, the gospel accounts, you'll see that really nothing Jesus does is apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. As God himself, of course, he had the power to do anything that was according to his will, but as a man, as one descended from David, as one raised up from the soil near the Sea of Galilee in the far north of Israel, as this man, fully man, he he needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So the very next chapter, when Jesus is going out to the, the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, Scripture tells us the Spirit drove him there, as he would, as the new Israel, uh, defeat Satan in the wilderness and his temptations, unlike the Israel of the Old Testament, who failed in their temptations in the desert. In chapter 12 of Matthew, Jesus quotes Isaiah, where the prophet, uh, quoting the Lord, says, I will put my Spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Think about that. How many of you today are Gentiles? I imagine nearly each and every one of us. And what does Jesus say? It is by the Spirit that I will declare the gospel to you. We are only here today praising the Lord because the Spirit empowered that ministry of Christ. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus quotes Isaiah at the beginning of his ministry in Luke. And what does he say there? He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has appointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This, this good news of jubilee, of freedom, of release from spiritual debts, of, of spiritual blindness being turned into spiritual eyes to see the things of Christ is empowered by what? By the Holy Spirit. The fact that Christ was ministering not on his own power, but in the power of the triune God together bringing this glorious freedom to his people. And that's not all, friends. Christ's great and ultimate work. Christ's great work of being crucified for our trespasses, of being raised up for our justification. How does Paul tell us that this occurred? It was the Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead. That even when Jesus went to the cross and the body was laid into the tomb, he wasn't abandoned by the Spirit that dep- dep- descends upon him now in Matthew 3. But it was that very Spirit that raised him from the dead. And if Paul can tell us that we are justified by the resurrection of Christ, as he does in Romans chapter 4, that means without the Spirit we would not be saved. We would not be declared righteous. We would not be vindicated. But because the Spirit empowered Christ's ministry, we are those things. And even that's not all. (laughs) For what does John the evangelist in the fourth gospel tell us that John the Baptist goes on to say in his own preaching? He asks the, the crowd a rhetorical question. You know that one that you see the Spirit descending upon? This is the one, Jesus, who baptizes, there's that word again, with the Holy Spirit. John, John recognizes that just as he baptized Jesus with water and the Holy Spirit descends, so Jesus will take that Spirit and baptize his people with it. So that when And Paul in Romans 8 will say that you will be resurrected by what? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Your very eternal life in Christ is empowered by that Spirit which whom, with whom Christ baptized you that spirit that descends upon a dove in this text is is in seed form the source of your eternal life, of the new bodies that you will share in glory. The Heavenly Father pours out His Spirit on Christ. Christ pours out His Spirit on you. And Paul tells us that that Spirit poured out on you will give life to your mortal bodies. Your eternal hope of glory your eternal hope of freedom from pain, from disease, from illness, from struggle, from temptation, from wars, from all those things. Your freedom from every ill of this world is rooted in the fact that Christ poured out his spirit upon you, just as he received it from the Father in this text. When Christ in his first coming made himself like us in his baptism. He planted the seed that will blossom into Christ's return when we are made like him. He made himself like us, that we will be made like him with spiritual, with a capital S, bodies forever. That is all there in the empowerment of his ministry in Matthew 3, verse 16. And if that weren't enough, if it weren't enough for the the Spirit of God to descend from the heavens so that people could see with their eyes, now the very voice of God descends from the heavens so people can hear with their ears the ministry of Christ endorsed in verse 17 in Matthew chapter 3. This is, again, external verification. Christ declaring for all to see his, his proper credentials, to be our Savior And beyond the the fact that the voice speaks, that the words that the voice speaks are crucial to understanding what's going on here. From the voice from heaven says this, Behold, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. In a couple of months, your new pastor will go before the presbytery, and they will ask him lots of good questions on theology. And I I don't think I've ever been to a uh, ordination exam that didn't ask, how do you prove from Scripture the Trinity? And they always turn to Matthew chapter 3, and they always say, yes, right here we have God the Father speaking, we have the Spirit descending, we have Jesus being baptized. This is a great uh, proof text for the Trinity. And yes, it is. Don't get me wrong, but there is more than simply a proof text of the Trinity going on here in Matthew chapter 3. When, when the audience heard this man before them jesus declared by god to be my son they would have thought they would have perhaps not thought first of the trinity because that hadn't been fully revealed to them yet for an israelite to be declared the son of god was actually royal language this was kingly language this was the language rooted throughout the old testament when when the lord comes to david in second samuel and promises him what? A son. He says, what? Your son will be a son to me. Your son will be my son. He will be a king. In Psalm chapter, Psalm 2, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. A, a word delivered to the Davidic king in Psalm 89. Something similar. The Lord promises, I will make the king my firstborn. The highest of the kings on earth which Paul picks up in Colossians chapter 1. Isaiah 11, the one who has the spirit is also the king, as we see later in Isaiah as well, chapters 42 and 62. So when Jesus is declared to be by the voice from heaven, the very Son of God, this first and foremost in the ears of those who heard that wondrous voice would have Heard his kingly credentials, his royal status being affirmed for all those who were there. They may not have known that Jesus was from Bethlehem. They may have assumed he was born in Nazareth. They may not have known the genealogy laid out for us in Matthew chapter one, that Jesus was the direct descendant of David and of Solomon and Hezekiah and Uzziah and all those who who carried along the, the, the bloodline of that. Davidic promise in 2 Samuel 7 that I just referenced, that there would be forever a king on the throne of Israel. So when Jesus is declared to be that son, he is declared to be that ruler. But in that promise, there was, uh, there was something else going on there, wasn't there? <laughs> For how could the Lord promise to David a king who would reign forever? Forever. A king who would reign over all the earth. Firstborn of all the kings of the world, as I read from Psalm 89. How could you have an eternal, perfect king? Unless that king was a little bit more than simply the son of David. Not merely the son of David, but as Jesus in his own ministry points out from Psalm 110, the one whom David declared to be his Lord must be the very son of God, not simply in a kingly sense, but in a divine sense. For him to be an eternal and perfect king, he himself must have those traits. He must be eternal. He must be omniscient. He must be omnipotent, all-powerful, the only sort of king worthy of the title, king of the world. In short, he must have the very character and the very status of God himself. So when you do hear this voice, you can say, yes, this is, this is proof of the Trinity. Yes, this is indeed proof that Jesus is indeed God. For only such a being could rule over us forever. Not merely for a few years on a throne." Subject to the vicissitudes of ancient Near Eastern politics, a king rises, a king falls, the Assyrians come, the Babylonians come, the Persians send them this way and that way. Those kings would rise and fall, but one would come to reign on a throne far above any of those tides of the history of man. God himself would come to be the shepherd of his people. God himself would come to rule over his people. And he does through does so in his divine Son, Jesus Christ. Now you see why this text reveals in full form the credentials of Christ. He comes not only to identify himself with sinners, but to be the only one who could save sinners. The only one as one person could offer a sacrifice, not merely for himself, not merely in exchange for one other life, but for the lives of all his people. Myriads from every age, myriads from every tongue and tribe and nation and place on earth. Friends, this is the good news of Matthew chapter 3. The one who identifies with us is the very one who rules over us. And the very one who rules over us anoints us with his spirit. That we might be saved. That he might win for himself a people. That he might win for himself a kingdom, a church, a flock of sheep. <laughs> those who would be fully and forever his. As he reigns over us eternally. With those new spirit resurrected bodies that share his righteousness. His eternal life gifted to us. Let us pray. Oh, God, we thank you for who Christ is. Lord, you would have been justified to hide him from us. You would have been justified to rule in, in the throne of heaven forever, condemning us to death on the very day we first took our breath and even when we were conceived in our mother's womb in sin. Yet, Lord, in your infinite mercy... In your desire to bring glory to the name of Christ, you sent him to earth. Lord, to identify with us, to be made like us in every way, sin and guilt accepted. Yes, Lord, you did. So, Lord, may our hearts be moved. May our hearts be moved to the very depth, not merely of our own need for him, but the very depth in which he went to make us his. May, Lord, we be filled with gratitude May be filled with hearts that desire to seek after you, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, that all these things might be added to us in him. In whose name we pray. Amen.